from the letter to the Romans, chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So please join with me as we begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for what Paul wrote to the Romans. We ask that you would glorify your, your name in our midst, that we would behold the beauty of the triune God, that you have so worked in redemption throughout history that you've revealed who you are to us, and that you've not only given your Son, but also your Spirit for not only our justification, but our sanctification. We pray, Father, that you would give us today an ability to see how you sustain us, that we would be able to rejoice in the midst of the worst sorts of trials and sufferings. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Well, this message this morning is titled, Rejoicing in All Things in God. And the reason it is titled as such is because this passage calls us to recognize the means by which God sustains us in the midst of sufferings. As Christians, all of us must grow in our knowledge of God. The Christian life is not an experience of an internal heart reality divorced from knowledge. The Christian life also is not the acquisition of knowledge that doesn't become heart realities. The Christian life is the acquisition of knowledge that feeds and sustains heart realities that cause us to be able to, in the midst of sufferings, because of what God has done in our hearts, be able to call out to Him, cry out to Him, look to Him in the midst of suffering and in the midst of trials. 
Therefore, because the Christian life is about what God does in our minds and in our hearts, what about God does in our minds and our hearts, therefore the Christian life is greatly aided by dwelling upon, meditating on, delighting in, and making our abode in, as it were, doctrines. Not doctrines of the mind alone, but doctrines that are rejoiced in in the heart. One of the highest and most profitable doctrines in this realm is that of the Trinity. There is one God. There is one divine nature, eternally existent as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what we began our worship with this morning, wasn't it? Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We confessed in the Creed that the Spirit is also worshipped and also glorified along with the Father and the Son. We worship one God, eternally existent as three persons. Not one God who eventually became three persons in history, but eternally existed as three persons. However, though He existed eternally as three persons, we did not perceive this at first as men. This uniquely Christian doctrine does not merely rightly express the existence of God, but it actually forms how we live. That is, the existence of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are mapped to, if you, were, if you will, the redemption history that God has worked out. You can actually divide history as the age of the Father, the work of the Son, and the sending forth of the Spirit to form and sustain His church. Now, don't get worried. I'm not going dispensational. It is a way to understand the redemption history. It's a way to understand the way in which God has primarily and chiefly worked in the covenant of redemption. Therefore, because this doctrine explains who God is, how God is, and because it explains how God has worked in history with His people, it is deeply important and practical in the Christian life. Essentially, what I want to impress upon you this morning is this. What we understand about God Himself shapes how we think about the gospel. What we understand about God and His nature as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit informs how we think about the gospel and what He's done in the gospel, and this in turn determines how we live. If we do not believe that God is a father, we will eschew fathers. If we do not believe that God dwells among His people, or if we do not believe that God is a spirit, we will not understand that God desires to dwell among His people. What we believe about God determines everything about how we live out our Christian life. All of our emotions, our feelings, our attitudes are all supposed to flow from a knowledge and a delight in the Trinity. Again, it's not head knowledge alone. Without heart knowledge, both together. You cannot divorce them from each other. They are married, as it says, I believe, in Ecclesiastes, that, that friendliness, peace, they kiss each other. This is what it's supposed to be in the Christian life. The head and the heart are supposed to go together. As Christians, therefore, who live in a fallen world, we are all going to be tempted to despair in the midst of terrible circumstances. Some of you have walked with Christ long enough that you know that there are not only bad days in the Christian life, there are bad seasons in the Christian life. There are hard months in the Christian life. There are hard pregnancies 
in the Christian life. There are hard relationships in the Christian life and experience. And if we are not filled with a knowledge of how God sustains us or how He would sustain us in those seasons, we will miss out on one of the great means to lay hold of the grace of God, that through meditation on His Word, we would be able to make petition to Him as we see in this passage. And that that petition would not just be asking for relief from the suffering, but as this message is titled, that we would be able to rejoice in the midst of the suffering. So much Christian preaching, so-called Christian preaching, in our world today is focused upon getting or improving the state or quality of your life and getting out of the problems. And so little thought is given to How do we rejoice as God sustains us in the problems? Because, brothers and sisters, sometimes He doesn't just take the problems away. It takes a while for them to get worked out. And while we are waiting, what will we do? We must learn to rejoice at all times. Paul, in this passage, reminds his hearers that they are supposed to actually rejoice at all times, even in the midst of suffering, not while they're delighting to get out of the suffering. Because God's love in this passage, as Paul says, has been spread abroad in our hearts, we know that His Holy Spirit is active within us. One of the greatest and sure confidences that you have some sense of God's love for you is you know that that was given to you by the Holy Spirit. I was working with someone yesterday in an evangelistic context, and one of the things that I mentioned was Jesus giving praise to Peter, because when Peter says that Jesus is the Son of God, he says to Peter, blessed are you, because flesh and blood didn't reveal it to you, but rather it was the Holy Spirit who enabled you to understand. The Holy Spirit causes God's love to be spread abroad in our hearts so that we can love others around us. Because God's love has been spread abroad in our hearts, we know that His Holy Spirit is not only active, but we are enabled to be persevered. We are enabled to, by His Holy Spirit, have endurance and godly character, which are His fruit and not ours. One of the wonderful aspects of the fruit of the Spirit is it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit that I can make. To be sure, I must participate in the grace of the Spirit. But it's God who accomplishes sanctification in us. Because God's love has been spread abroad, we can trust Him in the midst of suffering that He will sustain us. Because God has given us His Son and His Spirit, we can trust that His grace towards us is not going to be in vain. He who has already reconciled us will bring us to Himself at last. This knowledge, the knowledge that He has not only reconciled us, but will bring us to the last day in faith, it gives us great confidence in the midst of suffering to joyfully glorify Him. It's not gracious, it's not glorious to try to praise God and thank God with grudges. Now, there is such a thing as a sacrifice of praise, and there is a volitional act from time to time in the Christian walk where I am choosing, Lord, to bless you in this moment. But all of those, all of those volitional choices to praise God in the midst of suffering must be fueled by an understanding that He is sustaining me now. 
It can't be this kind of grin and bear it, self-help, motivational gospel where it's, I'm going to praise God through the circumstances because when I praise God, I'm going to get the breakthrough. That's heresy, brothers and sisters, and it's destructive. And the reason it's destructive is because it divorces the practical Christian life and our heart actions from the knowledge of its God who sustains us. And the God who has given forth His Son to pay our debts has also given forth the Holy Spirit. That's what we are celebrating in Pentecost and in Trinity. So I want to look at four aspects today of how this rejoicing comes about. First, that this knowledge of how to rejoice in the midst of suffering comes to us from God's Word. And I'm going to take us through a very brief tour of the letter of Paul that he wrote to the Romans. I'm going to look then at what it means to actually be justified by faith. As Christians, we hear, especially as Reformed Christians, we hear the call to be justified by faith, and sometimes we hear it so many times that we haven't defined what it is, and therefore we presume that we are, and we presume that we know, and yet it helps as Christians, it's profitable for us to remember what, it, what Christian terms actually mean. Then I want to look at what it means to be sustained by the Holy Spirit in this passage, and finally, our confidence when we approach the judgment at the end of all things. Paul writes to the Christians in Rome what is arguably called the greatest letter ever written. Reformed preachers have a tendency to preach through the book of Romans at great length. I believe Martin Lloyd-Jones did it for, what, eight years? John Piper did it for six years. Other pastors throughout the centuries, the Puritans, Thomas, o, uh, Thomas Watson has a, I think, eight-volume collection on Romans. I've got at my house a six-volume collection of Romans that I've been given. People love the book of Romans. And the reason the book of Romans has been such a delight to the Christian church is that, as John Piper says, there is no greater exposition of the gospel of God than the book of Romans. That's a stunning statement. We have four Gospels, and what Piper is saying in that statement is that there's no greater exposition of what the Gospel means and implies to the Christian life. Paul is writing in his letter to these Christians in the city of Rome, not merely to strengthen the faith of the Roman Christians, but to glorify God through strengthening their faith. That is to say, Paul's aim is not just to inform the Romans of how to be sustained. Paul's aim is to glorify God and to praise God as he's sustaining them through his letter. Therefore, Paul begins by communicating his desire to be with them and expressing his thanksgiving to God because of their salvation. Paul then expounds the gospel as the entire history of God's dealings with man. The gospel does not just begin with, at the time of Christ, God sent a message through Gabriel to announce. The gospel for Paul begins all the way at the beginning of creation. All of God's dealings with man, that is all of history or redemption history, Paul includes as an explanation of the gospel. In the beginning, Paul says that though men knew God by natural revelation, that is, they saw God through perceiving Him and the things that were made, they have rejected Him. Brothers, those who are outside the faith in the Christian life, we, we don't consider them to just be lacking knowledge of who God is. Paul says in Romans 1 
They know who he is. He has made it plain to them. They have turned from him to serve the creatures. They've rejected him and made idols out of animals and beasts and birds and other created things. And they are worshiping that which is not God. Perhaps the greatest worship in our age is man himself through various means, pornography, the worship of power, the subjection of others, the exaltation of self. In fact, if you had to name the chief heresy of the American culture, it would be the me worship and the making my life of everything that I want. We are worshiping when we do that ourselves, one of the creatures, not the creator. Paul goes on to say that God, therefore, has revealed a wrath against ungodliness and against sin, against those who have turned from Him by giving them up to it. That is one of the scariest ideas in all of Scripture, that the the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against unrighteousness by allowing men to continue in their unrighteousness. God has given them over to fulfill in themselves the error of their idolatry. Paul calls this God's wrath. Wrath is a very strange word in modern times. We presume God's wrath is this capricious, flippant passion that God is susceptible to, that it's outside of God and He's losing control of Himself, and that He's not able to express how He actually feels, and that somehow His love is diminished and downplayed by His wrath, or that God's love and grace are incompatible with God's wrath. But God's wrath is actually integral to who God is as a loving and holy God. John Murray states, a theologian from the prior century, he states this about God's wrath. It's a very helpful understanding that God's wrath is not a capricious, flippant, instantaneous thing, but rather this, God's wrath is the holy revulsion of God against that which is the contradiction of His holiness. It's very easy for us to remember the history of the last century and consider people like Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler and consider the wrath of God against such egregious sins such as those. God who wants this whole world filled with image bearers who multiply and take dominion over the earth, we can understand, even in our fallen condition and limited minds, God's wrath against those who would systematically destroy millions of image bearers. But it is another thing for us to understand God's wrath against all such sin, and all sin even not in the likeness of a Hitler or a Stalin. We think wrath is is justified in genocide, but we don't think wrath is justified against ourselves. The question to ask ourselves is this, have you ever considered the weight of the wrath of God that is coming against you? Have you ever thought about that? Even Christians growing up in the church have never considered that apart from Christ, there is a holy, unstoppable glacier of wrath that God has against all such sin. And without it being assuaged, it will destroy me. Paul says that both the Jews, those who have an external witness of God's law in the law, and the Greeks those who have an internal witness of the human conscience, 
both of the Greeks and the Jews, those who know God's ways and those who do not know God's ways, sin against God and deserve, as he says in Romans 2, wrath and fury. Praise be to God that we are not left in that condition. Paul goes on in the very next chapter to say the remedy of what takes place. At the right time, God manifested the means of righteousness by providing a means of escape from his wrath against sin. He put forth his own son who made a propitiation against God's wrath by his own blood. This is God's gracious gift, and that gracious gift cannot be received by any means apart from recognition and acceptance. That's what we mean to be justified by faith. Even Abraham, our great patriarch of the faith, was saved in this exact same way, that he heard some promise outside of himself of a means by which the world would actually be blessed instead of the world would fall under condemnation. Paul writes that Abraham experienced this and considered that God was able to raise his own son from the dead, the one that he was going to put to death, Isaac. And Abraham's faith is the exact same way that we today are saved. And in fact, it's the way that all people have been saved at all times. Because of God's promise, those who trust in Christ's work are considered righteous by God because the blood of Christ has delivered them from all guilt and all shame. They're considered to be righteous by God and therefore have peace with Him. Isn't this an amazing promise? That that there is this wrath that is holy and just and great. And yet, because of the atonement of one man who was sinless and perfect and God Himself, that those who receive His work upon the cross by faith can be delivered forever completely from that wrath. In verse 1 of chapter 5, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Do Do you remember how awkward it felt just a few minutes ago in this room when we were talking about wrath? That's because it is a horrible thought to think about If God is against us, if God himself has a just and holy wrath against sin, and we know in our own consciences and what people tell us about ourselves and what we see in other people that we are all under wrath, we cannot rejoice with great joy if we don't know that. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. The question is, what does it mean to be justified by faith? Those who are justified by faith don't become justified by faith by hearing the phrase justified by faith and say, I want to do that. Justified by faith has a specific meaning. It means that those who are justified by faith have heard a promise of God outside of themselves that God acquits the guilty. And you cannot accomplish the trust needed. Rather, you cannot receive the grace of God, unless you understand that you are guilty, because it's a promise that he acquits the guilty. God acquits the guilty through the blood which was shed by Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. 
Those who hear God's promise of pardon based on the propitiation of the blood of His Son and those who respond to that promise with wholehearted reception are counted as righteous by God. It is not enough to hear the fact that Jesus offers propitiation through His blood. You must recognize your need for that propitiation, your need for that deliverance, and secondarily, you must receive it. You must receive it with wholehearted reception. What do I mean by that? I mean that you reject everything else in your life that you are hoping to hold on to as a life raft of driftwood against the coming tidal wave of God's wrath, and you fly to Jesus Christ. And you recognize in Him your great need and His great ability to meet that need. That is what it means to be justified by faith. It's an act of the heart that upon hearing the promise that God acquits the guilty, it remembers, I am guilty, I have a great need, and now I am being presented with a great Christ. Only those who recognize their guilt and their need for redemption will see the gift of God in Christ as precious. If you don't see the gift of God in Christ as precious, you are not saved. If you don't think it's important, if you don't think it is everything in your life, you should doubt whether or not you are trusting in Jesus Christ. If you don't see in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross your absolute necessity for something like this to take place, and you don't trust that by faith God can take the work of Jesus Christ and apply it to your account, then you need to pursue Him. In fact, I would call you this morning, if you have never recognized your need for forgiveness from God and redemption from God, you must look to Jesus Christ alone. You must look to Him and fly to Him and begin to trust Him and cling to Him with everything that you are. Therefore, if we are justified by faith, what does it mean that we have peace with God? We, we mentioned it just a few minutes ago. It's this, that all who believe in Jesus Christ, who receive Him by faith, have been justified by God. They've been declared by God to be completely righteous. And therefore, because they are completely righteous, the wrath of God has no target upon them any longer. For all those who believe in Jesus Christ, God counts the blood that He has shed as the cleansing of all guilt and the removal of all animosity which would incur His wrath. Essentially this, the war is over in the cross of Christ. God has no wrath towards those who have looked to the Son for redemption. If you have looked to the Son for redemption and you are recognizing in Jesus everything that you need, you need not fear wrath at all. That's why you're able to say with Paul in verse 1, we have peace, there's no more war. God has no wrath towards those who look to Jesus Christ. This is because God Himself is the author of salvation and the, ones, the one who has designed this means of wrath removal. In John 3.36, Jesus says when talking to Nicodemus that those who believe not in the Son, the wrath of God abides on them. It's not to say that the wrath of God is put on those who reject the cross the wrath of God is already on all. And Jesus is declaring to Nicodemus, if you do not recognize me, the Messiah, as everything of God's answer to the great problem 
not only of Israel's covenant unfaithfulness, but of all of men's unfaithfulness, then the wrath of God is still abiding upon you. Praise be to God, through what Jesus has done, we're not only pronounced righteous by God, we're not only given a promise that we will never face God's wrath, we are actually given a sustaining grace in the life that we live. Verse 2, through him, through Jesus Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Through Jesus Christ, we have received a persisting grace, which causes us to thank God because of a glorious future. This grace in which we stand is an active communication of God's power and God's kindness towards those who are in Jesus Christ, who have pursued trusting Jesus Christ. God's constant supply of grace to us in the midst of this accomplishes true rejoicing. It it means that we are able to find our delight in Jesus Christ, and that delight overflows and is completed by the act of expressing that delight. It is not enough to see Jesus Christ and my great need for Him and His great answer to my sin and my guilt and shame. It is not enough to recognize those things, as I said at the beginning, in a mental way alone, but it must culminate in a heart rejoicing and expressing a thanksgiving that's full of glory. God's constant supply for the Christian not only allows him to rejoice in God, but it's actually one of the points of redemption. It's the outflowing of real thanksgiving and expressions of praise because we have a sure knowledge of our future. We know where we're going. We're not just escaping wrath. We also have this great promise, as he says in the second verse, as we hope in the glory of God. This is possible because of the knowledge of our current salvation and that He will not take His hand off of us. He will cause us to persist and to persevere in grace. It delivers us not only from all fears of destruction at the end of our life, but perhaps a more essential part of who we were made to be. The knowledge of God's sustaining grace to me today gives me great hope that He will fulfill my greatest desire As human beings, we were not created to just experience a natural world in which we, to be sure, are able to delight in some of the things of this world. But as image bearers of God, we were given the capacity to know God. And that's what Paul says in Romans 1. And the problem was we took that capacity to know God and we looked away from God and we started placing other created things as the fulfillment of that unending capacity for delight. Therefore, we hope in the glory of God does not just mean that we hope that God will be glorified, but it also means that we hope to see His glory and to be delighted in who He is for all time. We all desire something that fulfills ultimately, that fulfills at the core of who we are. We all have a capacity, an an appetite, a thirst that is infinite And it is unable to be sustained or quenched unless it is quenched by God himself. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, wrote on this topic, and it's a long quote. I, I will try not to engage with it that much, but I just want you to hear how Lewis writes about this capacity in human beings. 
He says creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. Think about this argument. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for something not in this world. If none of my earthly pleasures find, uh, satisfy that desire, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy this, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, but on the other, I must never mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. You see, for Lewis, that country was the heavenly state. And of course, he would not deny that the point of the heavenly state is that we behold God face to face and that we are able to dwell with our maker forever. I must press on to that other country and to help others do the same. Just as we receive Christ by faith, Christians are supposed to stand by faith, hearing and believing God's promise of pardon and blessing, all in hope of the glory of God. We were all made to experience and to extol the glory of God and nothing less than experiencing and extolling, that is, receiving and responding to the grace of God and the glory of God will satisfy us. Because we have this hope that we will see His glory, we can rejoice even in the midst of not seeing His glory to the fullest extent today as we wait in suffering. Paul is so sure of this final happiness of the saints and God that he therefore calls them in this passage to, to constantly rejoice in the midst of suffering. In verse 3, he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Not only are we hoping for the glory of God, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. But we have to ask the question, why can I rejoice in the midst of suffering? How can Paul say that suffering produces endurance? Brothers and sisters, there are forms of suffering that grind a person down to nothing. Suffering does not produce endurance by default. How does endurance produce godly character and character produces hope? Not all endurance produces godly character. You know this in your own life. You've endured things and not come out better on the other side of the trial. An illustration might be this. Convicts who wait out prison sentences and commit murder on the first day of their release do not have godly character that came from enduring their sentence. Endurance does not produce godly character by default. Not all character produces a patient endurance. 
Extremely disciplined people like Stoics or, or athletes, Olympic athletes, those people who are given over to things like OCD where they're, they're unable to do anything outside their pattern, these people don't have patient endurance, but really it's just a principled asceticism. They're sticking to putting up with it because they're afraid of something worse happening to them. That's who the Stoics were. They said, let's never eat anything good or do anything extreme because we're afraid of excess. They didn't actually live life. They were just afraid of the bad things in life. How does hope not put us to shame? There are thousands of people throughout history who have hoped for things, and those hopes have never come true. In in fact, in the Christian life, we often, don't we, we hope for things that are outside God's will, and they never come true. What does Paul mean in this way? Paul is teaching that we can rejoice in the midst of suffering because there is a direct link between our current circumstances and our future delight in beholding the glory of, of God. That link is the love of God that is constantly at work in our hearts, which is the evidence of the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. The reason that we can rejoice in the midst of suffering is because we are being sustained by the Holy Spirit in the midst of suffering knowing that He's going to produce endurance in us. We can rejoice in our sufferings with endurance because we know the Spirit is going to produce character within us, such that our thinking and our emotions are going to be shaped and renewed by His Word so that we can be changed in our visceral responses to disappointment, that in the midst of being aggrieved, we can respond in hope and in grace. We can rejoice in the midst of our sufferings because we have hope that in the midst of the horrible circumstances, a clear fruit of the Holy Spirit will be at work. He will do what He has promised, and therefore we can rejoice in the midst of suffering while we see little glimpses of His sustaining hand, though we are suffering at the time. You should never think that God will refuse to allow you to suffer But rather, you should hear from this passage that in the midst of horrible seasons, God can sustain me with a a resource outside myself who is the Holy Spirit, who dwells in me and produces His love in my heart. If we have this hope, we know that we will surely find our great contentment in eternal life. Eternal life the Lewis quote may, may have suggested that it's just a hope of another great country. But eternal life is not just living forever, but as Jesus said, eternal life is knowing the Father and the one whom he sent. Eternal life, brothers and sisters, does not begin when you die. Eternal life is what's offered to you in the gospel. You're given the promise of knowing God. As great as, and as wonderful and as joyous as the news that I will escape forever, all wrath of God, which was just against me for being a sinner, the knowledge that not only do I escape wrath, but in the gospel I get God, that's the point of the gospel. It's not just that we escape wrath, it's that we can now know our maker. We can be redeemed from the futility of looking away from him, and now we can look toward Him. And not only can we look toward Him, He will come and live with us. God, therefore, for the elect, for those who've looked to Christ, promises to sustain them even in the midst of terrible circumstances. Paul gives even greater evidence that we can therefore trust God in all these things, and he does this by tying our confidence 
to the expression of God's love in the cross. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One of the things we do when we baptize people here at this church is we remind them that Christ shed his blood for you. And we say to children and we say to converts, we say to anyone who's being baptized, all this was done for you, though you knew nothing of it at the time. Isn't it a wonderful, glorious reality that the cross of Christ happened in history before you or I or anyone we know could have done anything about it to stop it or cause it to come about? All this was done for us, Paul is saying, is at the right time while we were still weak, before we could ask for it or see our need. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why can we trust these things? Why can we trust that God will continue to sustain us by his spirit? The reason we can trust him to do that is because this is the same God who gave up his son. This is the nature of the God who we have come to trust in and to believe. Christ's death, as Paul says, for the ungodly is stunning. He says hardly anyone would die for a noble or righteous person. Imagine the, the best person you've ever thought has lived in this earth. Whatever it is, you, you, let's say you're really into technology and you think, okay, we'll, we'll sustain Steve Jobs so that he can keep doing the, the Apple thing. Or let's go find the greatest historian or the greatest king Whatever it is, if I was in that day, I could give up my life so that they could keep going. Who would sign up for that? You hear about stories of family members sharing kidneys or, or offering up organs when they die. That kind of love is almost unthinkable for most of us. And they do it for people they love and consider worthy of doing it for. And what Paul has just said, for all those who turned away from God's glory... For all those who saw God and made idols out of created things, God gave his son to die for that kind of people. And he didn't just give up a regular person. This was Jesus Christ offering up his own life for horrible sorts of people, wretched sorts of people. This is the God who sends his own son to die, not for righteous people who need over the last mile, but for the unrighteous people who died before the start of the race. Therefore, if we've been justified by Jesus' blood, we are not only going to be saved from God's wrath against sinners, but we are going to be sustained by him in the midst of his sustaining of our life. In verse 9, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Jesus' death accomplished the death that you deserve. And now through Jesus' resurrection, he now lives that you may live. And that life is not just the resurrection at the end of the age. It also is the life which you need to live today. That sort of spiritual grace which causes you to be able to maintain your life in Christ. That is to say, God is the one who is maintaining your life because he is the one who is sustaining the life of Christ by his Holy Spirit so that Christ's life 
because becomes your life. Just as the death of the Son accomplished our forgiveness, His life now assures not only salvation and pardon, but sustainment. This is why the life of the risen and exalted Christ is important for our life. This is why, in the wisdom of the church through the ages, they have taken an entire season to celebrate and to work out the understanding of what Easter means. That's why we worship on Sundays, because we are calling an an intentional reminder to the resurrection of Christ being our life itself. If we were reconciled, therefore, as enemies through His death, now that we are reconciled, we are going to be saved by His eternal life. This, therefore, gives us great, great confidence at the judgment. As I mentioned at the beginning, we're often ashamed, even as Christians, that God has wrath against sinners. In our limited human condition, we are perplexed by God's wrath, and we hate words like fury. But the better question actually should be this. I've been trying to make this point throughout the message. It's this. Why does God love anyone at all? That is actually the more perplexing question than how can God have wrath against sinners? If we truly sense the holiness of God and the worth of the Son of God especially, we would celebrate His wrath against sin and we would actually be utterly confounded at His love and grace and pardon of the ungodly. And yet, that is God's glorious nature. These things are not contrary to His nature. They come out of His nature. Knowing his free pardon of wretched sinners, we ought to be moved to worship his glory and majesty. And that's exactly where Paul takes us in verse 11. Not only do we know that the Holy Spirit will sustain us in the midst of suffering, but we know that his cross has accomplished our death and his resurrection now is for our life. More than all of those things, we are able to rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see, Paul has been working out the need for reconciliation, and now at this verse 11, he says, we have received these things. They're no longer just outside of us or just a message outside of us or some announcement of the possibility, but Paul says to the, the Christians in, in Romans, he's saying to them, we have actually become a part of this story, that we now have heard the message of Jesus Christ, and God has accomplished reconciliation in us. Therefore, even in the midst of trial, anguish, and suffering, I'm calling you this morning through Paul's letter to the Romans to remember this. You've already been reconciled. If you are one of those who have trusted in Jesus Christ and looked away from your guilt and shame and looked away from all the idols which you have fashioned in your life and are turning your gaze to Jesus Christ, you have been reconciled. And therefore, because you know you've been reconciled, when you go through seasons of trial and anguish and suffering, you must remember you've already been reconciled. One of the greatest strategies of the enemy in times of suffering is to begin to doubt whether or not you have been reconciled. And Paul is giving us great help in saying one of the fruits is that the Holy Spirit has shed abroad the love of God. If you know, if you truly know that God loves you through the cross of Jesus Christ, and you truly see the Holy Spirit preserving you in the midst of trials which should cause you to sink, but by God's grace and miracle you are not sinking, then you know you have been reconciled to God. 
Therefore, we should always rejoice. The thing that I always think about when I, when I consider how to recognize my privilege in Jesus Christ and being reconciled is, is a sentence like this, all things are mine in Christ. The reason that is so helpful is because it reminds me everything that I actually need, deliverance from wrath and to know God forever, I've been given in Jesus Christ. My call to you this morning, therefore, is to raise your gaze out of the trial and out of the circumstance, not that God would only deliver you from those things, but that He would cause you to look forward to that great horizon of Christ's return, to dwell upon and to meditate upon the foundations of our faith, that as we said in this creed this morning, that we are looking forward to the great return of Christ when He will judge all those with wrath and fury, those who have resisted His will, and will pardon with complete grace, without any hint of condemnation, all those who have clung to Him, and that after that moment, we will live with Him forever. And it will be the culmination of all our hopes and desires, everything that we could possibly want, attention, fame, power, wealth, blessings, anything that we could want will actually be finally fully fulfilled in Jesus Christ. My call to you this morning, therefore, is as those who've been justified by faith, let us praise God in all circumstances, because He will sustain us by His Spirit until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we, what can we say to these things? This is such an amazing reality that You have brought us into in the gospel, that the God of all ages, the God of all power and all grace and all wrath and all love, that You have provided a means of escape for we who were wretched sinners. And you've now called us to look to you in the midst of our life that we would be able to look forward in hope of the glory of God. We pray, Lord, that you would deliver us, therefore, from the things in this life and in this age and this world that delude us from knowing who you are and from finding in you the greatest fulfillment of our deepest longings. We pray, Lord, that you would not only waken us to the pleasure of knowing you, but that that would become the all-consuming passion of our life, and it would begin to shape everything in us, everything that we do, and all that we hope to become in you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.